Welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Professor Arndt Vogel, head of the Center for Personalized Medicine and head of the Gastrointestinal Cancer Care Center and, you know, Lord help me with my pronunciation, Medizinisch Hochschule Hanover in Germany. This week, you know, I, I have to just back up and say when I was at school, I, I endeavored to learn German and my German teacher delighted in introducing himself as Bond, Cyril Bond. And I, I could not pronounce anything. I was disastrous. So, um, and Germans are always so gracious and they all speak such perfect English. It's very embarrassing. So this week, we'll, we'll be focusing on Arndt's role as a committee member of the European Society for Medical Oncology, or ESMO, focusing on the recent ESMO Congress 2022 and discussing some key themes in cancer care that were identified there. Arndt attended medical school at George August University, Göttingen, in Germany, and undertook his residency at Hanover Medical School before completing a postdoctoral fellowship at Oregon Health Science University in Portland in the United States. It's a great institution I've visited and I've collaborated with them in the past. Thereafter, Arndt has worked as a senior consultant in gastroenterology and hepatology before achieving a professorship in gastrointestinal oncology in 2012. Then Arndt moved into his current roles, as I said in my opening comments. Throughout his career, Arndt has amassed 186 original publications, contributed 13 chapters and written a book. And alongside this, Arndt has lent his expertise as a member of the editorial board of seven different oncology and gastrointestinal focused medical journals. And he's worked with many oncologic societies, including, of course, ESMO. Since 2018, Arndt has acted as coordinator of the ESMO Clinical Practice Guidelines for Hepatocellular Carcinoma. And in 2020, he became a member of the ESMO Guidelines Steering Committee. And since 2021, he's been a member of the ESMO Faculty for Gastrointestinal Tumors and coordinator of the ESMO Clinical Practice Guideline for Biliary Tract Cancers. In 2022, Arndt also became a member of the ESMO Real World Data and Digital Health Working Group. The good professor has been very, very busy. We're very lucky, given how busy he is, to have Arndt with us here today. And I look forward to hearing more about the role he plays at ESMO and the updates he can provide from the recent Congress. I should say that when not pushing the boundaries of oncology, our guest is pushing himself as a runner and he's completed marathons. And as someone who also runs, uh, but I've never managed to go that far, I'm very impressed. So welcome to the to the podcast, Professor Arndt Vogel. Yeah, hey, Jonathan, thank you very much for inviting me and this really um, kind introduction. And I'm looking for, really forward to our discussion today. Absolutely, me, me too. And, you know, Arndt, I always like to start off with, and again, first of all, my apologies for my abysmal pronunciation. Um, so, you know, for slaughtering your, your language. So first of all, I always like to start with what, what took people into medicine, inspired, in your case, your interest in gastrointestinal oncology, and led you to dedicate your career to this particular area. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very valid question. And um, to be really honest, yeah, and as it is sometimes in life, um, it was honestly a coincidence. So I, I started my residency 
in hepatology and gastroenterology, as you have pointed out. And then I did my postdoc in Portland, Oregon. And um, Portland is really a great, great city, Mount Hood, you, you know it maybe. So it's, it's really a great area. And um, so I was interested in liver regeneration and stem cells and how they can differentiate into, into uh, hepatocytes. My, my experiments unfortunately failed. And I realized that my mice, which I used for this work, develop liver cancer. And then I thought, okay, so why do these mice develop liver cancer? I mean, they do not drink, they are not obese, and they do not have a viral infection. Yeah? So uh, that started my interest in liver cancer. And the question is, why do these mice develop cancer? And maybe how can we also prevent liver cancer? And then I did my postdoc, returned back to Hanover. And here, when I did my residency and finished my residency in gastroenterology, I was also very much involved with GI oncology. And I realized this is exactly what I would like to do. And for me, it was a perfect situation. So my basic science and my clinical interests came really together. And now I can do what I would consider translational research as my 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 work, my, my, my job, basically. Yeah? And um, I really enjoy to see my patients, to identify problems in the clinic, and then try to go back into the lab and try to to contribute to, to some of the solutions to improve outcome for these patients. And I think, you know, in GI cancers, in advanced settings, it's in, in many tumors still a desperate situation. Yeah, it is. Uh, and, you know, I've had a number of guests on who've been productive academically, but who also look after patients. And I always think, you know, certainly when I was training on that there was a degree of, you know, sort of a sneering uh, attitude from pure scientists. They looked on those of us who were clinician scientists as being somehow, you know, we were second rate. But yes. the, the, the curiosity of looking after a patient and talking to the family of someone who's dealing with the big C and knowing that you're going to be spending your weekend or your evenings in the lab trying to ascertain what's going on and how best to deal with it. I think, I think it's the pure scientists uh, that, that have got the, the thin end of the wedge. Yeah, yeah. I, I fully agree. And I, I also understand your feelings. It's always like sitting between the chairs. Yeah? In the clinic, you're the scientist. And in, for, for, for basic researcher, you're the clinician. Right? So you're always in between. But this is translational research, and I really enjoy it a lot. I actually like that that statement. In the clinic, you're the scientist, and uh, uh, and in the, in the lab, you're the clinician. I've, I'm blanking which American. Um, oh, good lord! Was it John Benjamin Murphy? There was a very famous American surgeon who described the hospital ward and the operating theater as the best laboratory in the world, and uh, it's all about observation. So, uh, sort of kicking off with that as a surgeon i i also worked with a number of professional medical societies to try and prosecute agendas that mattered to me but that can be very hard very slow very bureaucratic and in addition to esmo you've served as a committee member for several different societies make the assumption that some of the folks who are listening in have never played that political role talk to us about and i'm not asking you to shoot yourself in the foot uh, you've got to go back and, and, and sit on these committees. It's sometimes very difficult. How have you found the experience of working in the committee structure when as, as a clinician, you know, one is master of your own domain? And how have you moved things along expeditiously? Yeah, yeah, I think that's really a great question. And I, I think, I mean, to, to start off, 
So I, I like guidelines, right? Specifically in the beginning of my, my careers, I always found them helpful yeah, and I still do. Yeah, so there's a, like a fundamental interest from my side. Yeah, And I always thought, so once you're an expert or everybody who is kind of an expert and has really dealt intensively with a specific topic, yeah, should also be involved in, in, in making recommendations. Because I mean, as you know, medicine is not black and white. It's, it's gray in all shadows. And sometimes it's really difficult to decide. And then going back to a guideline to give you some guidance, can be helpful, yeah. And so, since I have worked now for so many years in, in GI oncology, I mean, I, I think I feel a little bit obliged to to participate in these guideline committees because I have specifically in hepatic biliary cancer, I spent so much time with that. Um, so that I think I, I should do. I need to do that, yeah. And the other point is, I mean, you said it's sometimes difficult, but I think it's also a lot of fun, yeah. Um, so one point would be. I think it's amazing how, I mean, we all see the same data, but we draw different conclusions. Yeah, and I think it's amazing. Yeah? And so participating in these discussions and, and understand how, how people differently think about the specific observation and to align it with my own view, and then finally come up with a conclusion that it's acceptable for all, I like it a lot. And it's a lot of fun. And um, you, you might, you, you can imagine probably for the, Hepatocellular carcinoma um, guideline. I mean, we not only talk to to oncologists and hepatologists, but also to surgeons, and you know what this means, yeah. Uh, interventional radiologists, pathologists, yeah. So all these different disciplines, and sometimes I mean, we have completely contrary views, yeah. And then come up to a, to 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 recommendation we can kind of all agree on was sometimes difficult. I fully agree. But I like that. And therefore, it's, it's, um, it's something really interesting and I can only recommend to do it. Well, look, I'm, I'm in concurrence with you that having guidelines um, is, is really important. It's an evidence-based strategy for moving from point A to point B. I fly airplanes for my avocation. And, you, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole deal before you even get in the airplane, flight planning, um, you know, all the safety checks you perform beforehand, executing the flight, it's nothing more than a whole series of guidelines. Obviously, there's a little bit of talent involved, um, to yeah. tell me, but, um, but there's no argument about those things. In medicine, you've already said you've got people with uh, not only different, different disciplines, but there's truth in stereotypes. You know, surgeons have a certain kind of personality on the average, um, you know, pathologists have a certain kind of personality on the average. Have you got any tricks for navigating and, and utilizing? Because the, the worst thing that can happen with a guideline is you end up with something that's sort of like vanilla. It's neither one thing nor the other because no one wants to offend anyone. And it, it, it's all sort of banal and bland. How do you navigate it? Yeah. So I think the, the, the first point is to listen right, to listen to the arguments and to try to understand the argument. And then if you disagree to find the weak point and get the people there, right? I mean, to say, okay, I understand your point, but have you considered that? And we need to integrate it somehow, yeah? And I think this, I mean, it does not always work. And in the, in the HCC guideline, we also have like a statement where we did not all agree. And it's just, I mean, 
three of us thought this way and the other seven thought the other way. And there was basically, it, it was just the way it is. And there was no discussion anymore. We said, okay, this is, we have here a mi minority opinion. We take this also in, into account and we say, okay, the majority recommended that, but the minority recommended that. So this is in line with what I have said before. It's it's not black and white. It's gray. Yeah? And we have to accept different opinions, specifically in an evidence-based-free room. Yeah, But I think in, I mean, for me, at least so far, we somehow came up with a conclusion where we could all agree on. Yeah. Well, another issue with guidelines that I'd like to get your perspective on, and um, I don't know the specifics of what you've worked on uh, as well as I know my own space, but um, sometimes these guidelines are published, and I can give, I'll give you two examples, uh, both of them from the surgical domain. One of them was about how to prevent... Um, uh, catheter-related bloodstream infections when putting in a central line for, for a variety of things. And I sat in a session at a very big surgical meeting, I won't mention which, and a member of the audience stood up and said that he was not aware that there were guidelines issued by multiple, multiple medical professional societies and, in fact, a national guidelining committee. Wasn't aware they even existed, didn't agree with what was stated and said that his personal experience was much more valuable uh, than, than evident, published evidence-based medicine. The person who was chairing that session made a masterful statement. He said, sir, I'd like to congratulate you. In 30 seconds, you've put back um, <laughs> the progress of evidence-based medicine 50 years. How do you, having written a guideline, make sure that people adhere to it? Yeah. Again, I think it's not, I mean, guidelines are also just written by humans and it's not always perfect. This is also something we have to agree on. But sometimes I, I think every physician needs to have the freedom to make his or her own decisions, right? And I think, I think personal experience is also something is important. And sometimes it's just that you cannot follow a guideline, but you need to make a decision based on your patient was sitting in front of you, yeah. But I, I think there are some general issues, yeah. For example, in gastric cancer, yeah, we have PDL one expression, we have the CPS score, we have not really completely consistent data with crystal clear evidence, yeah. So it's should we use a CPS of one to five, up to five, higher than five, higher than ten, whatsoever? It's Again, this gray area, yeah. And I mean, FDA has a recommendation, EMA has a recommendation, and then you are standing there and you don't know what to do. Yeah, should I do a CPS at all? Yeah, should I do PDL one expression at all? And if there is something, should I withheld treatment? Yeah, and this is these are difficult decisions, I think. And therefore, in this situation, at least, I mean, if you believe in European regulations and guidelines, I think it's helpful to have um, a guideline which can kind of support your decision-making, yeah? And this is another example is in binary tract cancer. Yeah, we have a lot of druggable alteration for which we only have phase two evidence, non-randomized clinical trials, yeah? In many cases, there's an FDA approval, but no EMA approval, yeah, so approval. Yeah. So it's really difficult to prescribe these drugs, yeah? And then having a guideline and a statement from experts in the field saying, okay, if you have an IDH from mutations, 
you should use an IDH1 inhibitor. Or if you have a BRAF mutation and there's an FDA approval, then use a MACBRAF inhibitor. Yeah? And for these situations, I consider guidelines as, as really helpful. Right. Well, let, let's get down and personal. So one of your key roles at ESMO has been a member of the Guidelines Steering Committee, as I mentioned. And we've already established guidelines are important, evidence-based structures to help clinicians get the best results for patients predicated on real-world data. So um, you can expand on any of the aspects of the work you've done uh, on the guideline uh, steering committee, but I'd like to know how you personally use ESMO guidelines in your own clinical practice. Yeah, so I mean, within ESMO, I think we, I mean, first of all, I, I really got attached to ESMO quite a while ago. I, I, I like the guidelines. I like the ESMO conference. Yeah. Um, and uh, for me, it's really my main society, of course. And I was really honored to be part of, of the different committees yeah, you mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. And within the um, ESMO uh, guideline steering committee, of course, we need to always discuss. So what are the most urgent guidelines we, we need to work on uh, so to identify really gaps rare tumors where we do not have any guidelines at all, for example, or tumor types where we have um, significant developments in recent years um, to, to, to start new new update, basically. And then we have these so-called living guidelines where we all always need to update the guidelines that have been just published. I mean, in HTC or in BDC, we have new new data or in all the other tumor types, new new phase three data, which need to be incorporated. So, I mean, this is something we discussed in the steering committee. Um, and and then I, I hope this is helpful to to really have the most accurate guidelines on, on the most important topics. Now, of course, we cannot always cover everything at, at every time. Yeah, so we need to prioritize um, some of the guidelines we can we can handle at a time. Yeah? And from, from my own clinical practice, I mean, this is what I said in the beginning. I mean, of course, we are all kind of experts in, in specific areas, but there are also a lot of areas where, where we are not so um, um, experts. And um, in, in this case, I, I, I always look today at guidelines and see what is the recommendation here and there. Not that I always follow the guidelines, but um, to make my decisions, um, I, I use guidelines in my clinical practice. And um, do, do you talk to patients about them? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think maybe sometimes it's not that I always say, okay, the guideline recommends this or that. I mean, for me, I think I, I use the guidelines most often when I need to talk to the health insurance companies. Yeah, So we have in Germany here um, a lot of drugs that are not reimbursed, and then we need to apply for, for reimbursement and funding directly um, at the health insurance companies. And here, guidelines are extremely helpful. I mean, first of all, to have a local tumor board, which makes a specific decision. And then it's always good and helpful if you have guidelines that recommend a specific treatment. And of course, um, phase, three, phase three evidence if, if available. Right, right. So um, just moving on to the, the Congress, you presented a special symposium at this year's ESMO Congress, a, a clinical practice guidelines update for biliary tract cancer. Can you highlight um, some of the key updates uh, from that session for, for the listeners, please? Yes, of course. I mean, so the, the, the BTC guideline has been published a couple of years ago, I think two, two, 2016. And Juan Vallee was the first author and 
that was an excellent guideline. Um, but many things have really changed over time. And within the ESMO Congress in, in Paris, we had a specific guideline session where a case was presented. And then based on the, I mean, unfortunately, the guideline, the new ESMO guideline was not yet published, but we are now very close and uh, stay tuned within the next two, three weeks. It will hopefully be published in the Annals of Oncology. Um, but I was able to already, of course, I mean, I knew what was in there and I could uh, comment on, on the case as we would have suggested it within the guideline. And I think the most important changes we have seen in biliary tract cancer are, first of all, that we have now not perfect, but good evidence for adjuvant therapy in, in BTC. And based on the Build Cup study, we would recommend capcitabine as adjuvant treatment. We have now, what we did not have before, evidence for second-line therapy, a new study that has been published. Um, we have more strongly recommended local therapies, and this was also part of the discussion in this case at ESMO. And the, maybe the most important point was the acknowledgement that we have a lot of genetic alterations in BTC where we have already drugs available today. So it's really critically important to perform next generation sequencing in, um, in BTC, which also fits very much to my role here in Hanover. You, you mentioned that I'm head of the personal cancer center here. So next generation sequencing is critically important really in, 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 in BTC. And we have in up to 40% of cases, uh, druggable genetic alterations, which really needs to be identified. And this was certainly something we also discussed at ESMO this year. Yeah. So I'd like to, um, it's a perfect segue to talk a little bit about the value of personalized medicine, which has become a topic of discussion, certainly over the last decade, uh, and, and certainly in oncology. Can you talk, I mean, was this a topic of conversation at ESMO 2022? And I'd also like you to speak a, a little bit more about what your role as the head of a personalized cancer medicine center yourself looks like, and how do you incorporate new information in your in your teaching and in your practice? Big question, but personalized medicine, you have to store, Professor. Yeah, um, so I think that's a very valid question. I mean, first to, to start with, I think you can always say that the glass is half full or half empty, right? So I think we were all very much excited about personalized medicine and the expectations were very high. And I think we are learning now that maybe some of our expectations were a little bit too high. Yeah. But what is very clear that we have now a very profound understanding of genetic alterations in most cancers, yeah, specifically BTC, um, we just talked about, and that we have drugs available which can induce responses and control the tumor for a while. Yeah. But in if you look at the data, it's always around six to 10 months, yeah, where you can say, okay, I mean, all the effort for such a short PFS, yeah, um, this is something we can argue about, yeah. Personally, I think that's the way to go, and we can discuss a little bit later on how we can proceed in the future. But for now, I think we first of all need to understand that in order to apply personalized medicine, we need to do NGS testing. And this is really the most critical part. And for me, there are three things to consider. Or Three, three mistakes you can make. First one would be to not test at all. Yeah. So, I mean, this should be avoided. Yeah. You should do NGS testing in your patients, specifically in those with a high rate of genetic alteration. Yeah. With druggable alteration. The second point is that you, that you, that you intend to do 
um, NGS testing, but you're using the wrong test yeah, because you're not very familiar with the field and you just say, okay, I would like to know other any genetic alterations, yeah, and you do not ask for a specific test. And there are a lot of tests, and it's really confusing, yeah. So if you if you ask for an NGS, you need to understand what you are asking for, yeah. This is point two. The third point is that you use the right tests, and you get a result, but you do not understand the result, yeah. That you do not see that you have here a specific alterations that can be that can be a target for a molecular therapy. Yeah? And this is a so rapidly moving field where we have so many different tests. We have so many different alterations, not only mutations, but also overexpression, amplifications, fusions. This is difficult to understand. And you need to have throw knowledge on, on, on the test. Yeah? And then we have a lot of alterations where we have just recently first results on, on drugs, right? Um, um, and this is also something you need to un understand. And therefore, I think at this point in time, education is really key. Yeah? First of all, who should get testing? When he or she should get testing? Which test should I use? And then very important to understand the test and, 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 and understand whether you can use a, a molecular therapy or not. Well, you know, the problem with being in an ivory tower is places like you were are, are known is that there's an assumption that the rest of the world's doing the same thing. I'm no names, no pack drill, as they say, and I'm not going to drop anyone in it. But in the past few weeks, I've seen two cases where it is apparent that the treating physician was missing a trick. One was um, uh, a woman who was diagnosed with um, a breast cancer and there was no thought of checking for BRCA1 and 2. Another is the case of a woman who had two different cancers who very clearly had Lynch syndrome. Yeah. And, you know, there was no follow-up for the appropriate <laughs> organs that she had left, nor was yeah. there any, any move to discuss this with her, her offspring or her, her, her siblings. So how do you get the word out into the community? Yeah, I, this is, I mean, a, a problem I see every day in my clinic. I mean, it's it's no surprise. I mean, this is what we see every day. And I mean, the awareness about also the genetics and heritability, and this is something, I mean, I asked my, my, my young fellows and residents always, so did the patient have the family history? I don't know. So why do you, what do you mean you don't know? You have to. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? And if I ask them, so sometimes they just say no. And I say, no. So do you mean really no, no, that you have asked them and they do not have a family? No, I just did not ask them. Yeah. So even within our clinic, it's something where we really need a lot of education. Yeah? And I, I fully agree. Um, it's not that, I mean, it's done more and more. I mean, most patients have tests. Interestingly, N-track testing. Yeah. I have never seen a patient with an N-track um, uh, alteration. Yeah. But Almost all patients have N-track testing. Yeah? So I, I don't know. I mean, so I think we first need to, to focus on the most important point. And you said BRCA and MSI, which I would consider as really critically important. And um, we can only do education. We, we need to, I mean, we can't do everything. Yeah? And we, on the very rare alterations, I mean, maybe we can miss them. But on, on the more frequent ones, yeah, and specifically when the family would be involved, this is something we need to we need to we need to do in our clinical practice. I think it's really important, and I can do only do 
include it in my talks, in my presentations, and, and try to educate as many colleagues as possible. Well, you know, one, one of the, the, it's a bit of a leading question, Hans, because one of the things that I've found highly efficacious is just sometimes to say the heck with, you know, peer-reviewed publications and presentations at academic meetings. Get interviewed on television and educate the general public that, hey, if you're, you know, heaven forbid you're diagnosed with this disease, here are the questions you need to ask. Yeah. Take ownership, right? I tell people that, you know, the expression, it's your medical record. What part of it's your medical record do you not understand? So I think we've got to engage patients a lot more in these discussions. Um, you know, yeah, so but as you said, I mean, with BRCA and breast cancer, I think that we had very prominent women, right? Um, that were affected with that. And I think everybody heard about the story, right? And um, you would think. You would think, right. <laughs> yeah. So for any Hollywood actors or rock stars or opera divas listening in, if you have had the misfortune to be diagnosed with, with a nasty disease, please consider using the considerable platform you have for good and, and tell people about your journey and what they need to do. So anyway, let's move on from that a little bit. Uh, another sort of slightly, it might strike you as a vague topic, but like you, I've been involved in putting together meetings and a lot of people listening in may have no idea how a scientific meeting program is put together. And is it just arbitrary? And, you know, I want to invite this, this lady to give a talk on that and this gent to give a talk on that. How do you at ESMO identify topics and develop a program to best engage with your clinical oncologic audience? Yeah, so, so everything needs to be well balanced. Yeah, point one, what you just said. I mean, gender or sex, the, the rates are very important, right? I mean, do not, I, I, I was on some panels where there was no lady speaker, which I would definitely not recommend anymore today. So this is something that, should be considered. Surprisingly, it's not always considered. But in terms of um, topics, I think, I, I mean, within these congresses and meetings from ESMO and all other um, um, societies, of course, we need to identify the most relevant ones, right? I mean, where do we have really new developments? Yeah, breakthrough development. I mean, I don't know whether you have seen the Shalabi plot at um, ASCO with, with uh, Nivo Ipi in, in, in locally advanced colon cancer with yeah. this spectacular um, response rate in the niche tool study. Yeah, so sometimes we have these really breakthrough um, uh, data that we really need to decide. So how can we incorporate this from today into clinical practice without any approval or anything? Yeah, but this is so groundbreaking. Um, this needs to be implemented immediately. Yeah, sometimes we have controversial issues. Yeah, one I mentioned before with PDL one expression in gastric cancer, for example. Yeah, and I think this is here the task of the of the committees to to identify really the the hot topics yeah, and the controversial topics, and then find a good balance to to address all pro and cons. Yeah. I, I like it when people do have a slight. I haven't been to ESMO. I used to occasionally go, but um, there are some meetings that that have got a really interesting take. And when I was on program committees, I used to like going to different specialty con conferences uh, to look for interesting new ways. Maybe not the material, obviously not the material, 
but new ways of of presenting data or new ways of engaging with the audience. So maybe I'll have to line line myself up and go to the next Esmo. You you've you've been involved since two thousand and eighteen. Can you describe in that period of time what clinical themes, topics of interest, research focus have shifted, and and what are your what are your speculations about future focus? Is it personalized medicine? Is it biologics? What what do you, is it detection? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a great question. And I, I, I mean, I have to apologize. I have only my narrow view on GI oncology. And I think there are probably a lot of more exciting topics, which, um, which I might think about at, at this point in time. Yeah, but so since I'm really focused on GI oncology, please just let me just let me um, state what I think what has changed in, in this field in the last four years. And I think there were two major developments. I mean, in the past, we used only, as you know, chemotherapy. And, and now we have the two other treatment op- uh, opportunities like immunotherapy and targeted therapies, right? And for immunotherapy, I think there was a hype. I mean, for both treatments, there was a hype. And now we have a better understanding. Um, for immunotherapy, we have our first two targets, I would say, identified, PDL one and CTLI-4. But we can also acknowledge that this is not enough and we need additional targets and they are tested now like three digit and you name it. Yeah. So they are all now entering the field and I'm really looking forward how this will develop in the next few years and similar story for targeted therapies. As I've mentioned before, I think we have now a very good understanding um, which genetic alterations we can identify in our tumors. Um, Now we need more drugs that can can be used to target these alterations. Yeah, KRAS thought to be undruggable. We have now KRAS D12C, and now we get more and more drugs which target um, other um, KRAS mutations. We have we are seeing now the first P53 uh, directed therapies, wind better cutenine directed therapies. So I think we, we will see more and more drugs, which is really exciting. Yeah, and then the other point in this field is. Related to what I have said before, with the glass that is half full or half empty, yeah? so we have we can control the tumors for a while, but the tumors they are changing all the time, and we need to be more effective. Just having a genetic target and a, and a specific inhibitor does not guarantee long-term benefit. Yeah, so we really need to have a better understanding on primary and secondary resistance. Yeah, and I think this is the main topic in the next years to come in addition to the new drugs, that we have a better understanding of resistance and can come up with, with maybe combination therapies um, to overcome this resistance. Yeah. Well, as we near the end, um, Aunt, I've got a question that I like to ask all my guests, which is, if you were suddenly, you suddenly came across a genie and you were given three wishes in healthcare, what would they be? Yeah, thank you very much for this question. So I, I assume this trick with I, I wish to have a lot of wishes does not work in this case, right? Um, so I only have three wishes. Yeah. And if I say, I mean, I, I, I mean, there are the r- realistic wishes and the unrealistic wishes. Yeah, unrealistic would be that I say I would like to cure cancer. I mean, this is not realistic. Yeah. So when I think about my realistic wishes, yeah, I think I have three. One would be I have said before that I'm doing basic research and clinical work, and 
what I see is that it's always more and more difficult to get funding, right? I mean, it's highly competitive for most, in, with most societies, you have acceptance rate from below 10%. Yeah. So I, I, I really wish that we have sufficient funding to do good basic science and translational research in academia. Yeah. And it could be a little bit more than we have today, I think. Yeah. The other point is that we, find ways to to accelerate our research and to implement our finding into daily clinical practice yes this is something where we need to develop new ideas and concept how we when we have like rare genetic alterations in rare tumors like bdc yeah um, if you have red fusions in two percent or one percent of cases so and we have early phase two data how can we bring this into the clinic yeah and i think here we really need to come up with better ideas and concepts and the third one, so I really wish that all of our patients have access to the state-of-the-art um, diagnostic tools and therapeutic options that are available today. And I think there's still really great imbalances, I mean, within countries like the U.S. about rich and poor, female, male, Asian, non-Asian, whatever you name it. Yeah, and I think um, this would probably be my main wish that we have... Um, equal access for all our patients. Yeah, it's uh, it's an issue in all aspects of healthcare and, and access means different things in different places. It might mean a shortage of doctors, it might mean a shortage of money to pay for healthcare, yes. it might mean a shortage of roads or telecommunications or, or drugs or whatever. Well, it can be everything. Indeed. Yeah, no, noble wishes aren't. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. And I'd like to thank Professor Arndt Vogel for taking the time to talk to us today, share his knowledge of GI oncology and insights into the recent Congress, and frankly, for everything he's doing for patients and also for speaking such flawless English and once again embarrassing this monosyllabic Brit. Thank you so much, Arndt. Thank you very much, Lenten, for having me. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So, folks, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the EMJ podcast. Please like us on social media, subscribe so you don't miss a single episode about the amazing world of medicine, and tell your friends. So until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.